So I've been filling in for, been one of the people filling in for Pastor Mark. He's on an extended vacation. This was planned. This was purposeful. This was strategic. I've been saying that every time, just as general reminders. Uh, this is so we have Pastor Mark for the long haul so he doesn't get burned out. So uh, he is getting close to the end of that extended time off, but today I'm going to fill in for him. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you want to open your Bibles or grab a Bible around you and, and flip there, we'll put the verses on the screen as well. But we're going to finish our three-week mini-series on what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. So while you're flipping there, I thought I'd st- tell a story about the stock market crash, because why not? Let's do it. Um, in 1929, the fall of 1929, stock market crashed and chaos ensued. Well, not only the stock market crashed, but also what happened was in the next four years, bank after bank after bank closed their doors. And that was a big deal because the people that had put money in the bank, the people that needed the money for a difficult time that was coming up, they lost everything. There was no insurance. There was nothing that was going to give them their money back. When the bank closed their doors, they were done. That money was gone. It's estimated that the people lost about $1.3 billion at a time when money was scarce. Well, as you can imagine, that ensued more chaos. People don't want to put money into a bank if they're hearing that banks everywhere are closing, right? And so money's had le- banks had less money to loan out to people. This affected the manufacturing industry. This affected the agriculture industry. They were operating at a fraction of their capacity, which meant less jobs, which meant less money, which just kept going around and around in a circle. And the government was trying to figure out, what do we do? How do we get people to put money back into the banks? Well, President Roosevelt, he signed the Banking Act of 1933, and this created the FDIC. You might see the placard sometimes if you still go in person to banks. It's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And what it did is it restored people's trust in the banks because the, the government said, if your personal bank fails, we will come in. We will make you whole. That is still in effect today. If you open up a bank account, we actually just saw this. If you're keeping an eye on things going on in California, the Silicon Valley Bank, it failed, and lots of people would have lost a ton of money, except the FDIC stepped in, and they made everyone whole, even above their limit, even above the $250,000 that people might have had there. And it has the effect. It soothes the chaos. You see, assurance, it's a powerful thing. It can give us confidence. It can move us forward. Today, we're talking about assurance of where to put our lives. How do we know that we have the right, the true knowledge of Jesus Christ that Peter's been talking about? There's a passage in Matthew. It's not our main passage today, but I thought it would just really help us set the stakes for why this is important. This is Jesus talking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a heavy passage. That passage gave me a lot of anxiety when I was a younger believer. I wrestled with it. 
Specifically, because Jesus doesn't say this is going to happen to one or two. He says, many will say to me that day, was I going to be one of those people? Can I know if I'm going to be one of those people that Jesus is going to turn away on that final day? How can I know? That's what our passage is going to talk about today. That's where we're going. I'm going to read our actual passage out in front of us. This is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. It's the final one in our mini-series. It reads, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The people that Peter is writing to, man, they need assurance because they've been battered with false teachers who are deviating from the faith, both in theology and what they believe about God and believe what he has said, as well as morality, the way they follow after God. You see, they are turning away from it and they are trying to entice other people to do the same. They're claiming that there's no final judgment that Jesus isn't coming again. And the Apostle Peter, the one that's writing this letter, he's about to die. He's going to be executed, and he knows it. And so he's writing to stir them up by way of reminder that after he's gone, he knows that they'll be well cared for. A short recap, if you missed the last two weeks, or maybe you just have a notoriously bad memory, no judgment. Short recap, God gave us precious and great promises. And it's through these promises, when we go through God's promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. We begin to actively escape corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. The heart of this corruption, it's competing wills. If you take a look inside yourself, you'll find this nagging voice It just keeps trying to steer you towards decay. It whispers to you. It tries to seduce you towards selfishness or pride or anger or lust. You see, God has his promises, but so does sin. And sin promises that this mutiny will give you what you want. That gossip will give you self-importance. That anger will give you justice. That lust will give you fulfillment. But it never does. You see, it's through God's promises that we begin to cling to something else, that we escape this corruption. We turn from these sinful desires, and instead we, get, we begin to join God in who he's like. Last week we talked about what does this look like? What does it look like to be a partaker of the divine nature? And we had Peter, he was writing to us and saying, make every effort, man, have the fullest zeal, have an excited fervor, to do these things, to reach down into your faith, into your trust of God, and dredge up these seven qualities that he has given you. And we talked about those seven qualities. The first one is moral excellence. This is an uncommon character that is worthy of praise. We've been called to God's excellence, to his uncommon character that's worthy of praise, and we're called to follow in that. 
We're called to do that. Knowledge was the second one. As we engage in moral excellency, there comes a knowledge. It's a comprehension, an intellectual grasp of something. We begin to understand what is good and what is excellent and what is perfect. The reason it takes faith to have this knowledge is because God is the one that's setting that standard. God gets to say what is good and acceptable and perfect, not our culture, not our conscience, not what feels good to us. It takes faith. It takes trust to have that knowledge. With that knowledge comes self-control, maintaining control over our passions rather than being controlled by them. By trusting God, we're seeing these sinful desires as bad. And with his power, we're actively restraining them. Not by our will, but by God's power, we're reaching down and we are restraining. We're turning from these sinful desires. That leads to steadfastness. It's the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. This is endurance. So our relationship with Jesus, our trust in his promises, man, that's going to be our fuel. When things are hard, when things are pressing down because of our belief in God, we're going to reach into his promises. We're going to reach into God's goodness, and that is what's going to hold us to the last day. That's going to be our endurance. That leads to godliness. This is inwardly our desires are fixed on Jesus, and outwardly our actions become like his. It results in a life honoring to God, resembling God. We're not like Jesus in just one area of our life, but our life as a whole begins to move closer. It resembles who Jesus is. This leads to brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is a depth of exclusive love that ties into family relationships. I was on my way to work on Thursday. I was driving, and suddenly after I went over the railroad tracks, I hit my gas, and nothing happened. My foot went all the way to the floor, and so I kept pressing, and I pulled off to the side. I turned my car off. I opened the hood, and I called my father-in-law for just some diagnostic questions, just to help understand. And right in the middle of the phone call, he's like, no, I'm coming over. I'm coming over right now, right? Like, we expect that from family or family is willing to do that for us where they have our back no matter what what Jesus is saying is that it's not just your blood family that's gonna have your back it's gonna be your Christian family because of the blood of Jesus because of how Jesus sees all of us that are believers we're his adopted brothers that is gonna be the reason that we're gonna treat people with exclusive with abundant joy, with generosity, with sacrifice, not just because we're related to them, but because we have Jesus that's holding us together. That's brotherly affection. But all of these, they all build up to and they all point to love. This is agape love. It's a deliberate desire for the highest good of another, not just Christians, but everyone. And it's shown in sacrificial action. This isn't based on their performance, but who we are in Christ. So God does not love you because of your performance. He loves you because of his nature, because that is who he is. And so as we imitate that love, we're not going to love other people because of their good or poor performance. They can be the most wicked person ever, and we should still love them. That's why we're called to love our enemies. It's not a reflection of their performance. It's who we are in Christ. None of these qualities are supplied through our own power. 
We don't have the ability to make these happen on our own. We can't just white knuckle it and try harder. It's through our faith. It's through our trust of God and his promises that we can supply these. Week one, I said we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. These are some of those things. These are some of the things that God has allowed us to have. Our passage picks right up from there. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they do something. Peter says, if these qualities are yours and if they're increasing, if they're building on each other, if they're abundant, then something positive is going to happen. He's also going to tell us if you're lacking these qualities, something negative is going to happen. But we're starting with the positive. If these are yours, if they're building on each other, what's going to happen uh, is going to be great. He's going to say uh, it's not a blind faith. He expects a tested and remembered faith. He expects our faith to grow. And as we see God's power work in our lives, as we see God come through again and again and again, our trust should deepen and these qualities should deepen. They should stack on top of each other. If they're present, if they're increasing, then the next part is they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. First up, these qualities, they keep us from being ineffective. It's used of a worker who isn't working. There's someone that's hanging around the marketplace instead of out in the fields doing the work. Jesus uses this word when he, he gives a parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like. He talks about a master that continually goes out throughout the day to gather workers. There's 12 hours that they would consider, and the master goes out at the very beginning before the day starts. He goes out at 3 o'clock. He goes out at 6 o'clock. He goes out at 9 o'clock, and he's bringing these workers into the field to work. Our story picks up, it says in the, the book of Matthew, about the 11th hour, 11 out of 12, he went out and found others standing and he said to them, why do you stand here idle, ineffective all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. You see, there's workers that haven't been working. It's possible that these are the last workers, that they're the runt of the litter. They're the ones that no one wants to work on their fields. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But the point is, in a parable about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus talks about participation. He talks about laboring and everyone is invited into it, whether they are the runts of the litter or not. He is continually drawing people at all hours into his work. It's the 11th hour. 11 out of 12 hours, there's not much work left to do. There's not much time left to do it. And the master's like, get in here. Like, come join. Why do you stand here idle? Peter's in the same vein. We are given promises that we may be partakers of the divine nature. There is work for us to do. Peter says, if these qualities are yours, then you won't be idle. You will be contributing. You won't be ineffective in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You won't be useless. Man, when I was in high school and college, I struggled a lot with the fear of missing out. Uh, if you know the acronym, it's FOMO, it's F-O-M-O. But it's just this anxiety that whatever you're doing, that you're missing out on something going on over here. And so it robbed me of peace. It gave me a lot of anxiety, and it made the mundane excruciating. 
Because if I wasn't having fun over here, I was thinking about something that I could be doing to have fun over there or a better opportunity that I could be using. Think about what this verse does for you, though. If you have these qualities, if you're growing in endurance, if your knowledge of God's will is increasing, they keep you. They prevent you from being idle. You never have to worry about missing out on life because you are partaking in true life. Peter says you're being effective in it. That's assurance that my soul needs. When I see uh, awesome vacations on Facebook, if you're scrolling, excuse me, if you're scrolling on Facebook or Instagram and you see these awesome vacations or you see these new gadgets that people have or maybe you see someone else's career that's climbing, that's going higher and higher and higher, they're getting their business off the ground, you don't have to worry that you're missing out. You don't have to worry that you're wasting your time or that you're missing opportunities. We have assurance from this passage, that's the first assurance of the passage, that we're not wasting our time or opportunities. We're participating with God. These qualities, they keep us from being ineffective, but also they keep us from being unfruitful. And wait a minute, aren't those like the same thing? Like don't they both essentially mean useless? And yes, they, they essentially do, but it gives us a different view. It lets us look at it from a different angle. This unfruitful is a Greek word that draws from an agricultural metaphor of not producing the desired or intended results. So for trees, we expect them to bear fruit. Jesus loved using agricultural metaphors. In the Gospel of John, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruits. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's a long passage, but Jesus makes it very clear that you cannot bear fruit by yourself. And if you're not plugged into relationship with Jesus, you're going to wither. That's what corruption is that we were talking about in week one. This is the decay that we're escaping. This is what sinful desires lead to. And so if you have fruit in your life, if these qualities keep you from being unfruitful, that's assurance. It means you have found true life. It means you are plugged into the source. It's like a Christmas tree. You plug a Christmas tree and the lights go on, you know you have it right. You know that you're plugged in, that you're abiding in Jesus. You see, we have assurance that we are in relationship with Jesus, that we are bearing fruit. This is not legalism. None of these qualities will save you. They don't have the power to do that. They have to be done from faith. It's from our trust of God. We're reaching down into his promises to do these things. It can't be for salvation. 
But if they're from faith, they'll be an indicator for you. They'll show you that you're plugged into the source. They'll give you assurance that you are participating in the divine nature. This is the positive benefit of having these qualities. Now we're going to see the negative benefit of not having them. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There was one time that I was riding my bike around MSU campus when I was an undergrad, and I was texting, which you didn't have like the text-to-voice option or anything. You had the phones that slid up, and there was a whole keyboard, which were awesome. I miss those. But what it did was you can't text it with one hand, and so I was texting with both hands over my handlebar, and what I would do, it's not dangerous at all, I would text, keep my head down, and then I would peek my head up, and I'd look around, and then I'd go back to texting. And I was doing a really good job of looking out for people. What I didn't do a good job of looking out for were those little uh, pillars that they put in the middle of bridges to make sure that vehicles don't go across. You know, it was below my eyesight, and so I was looking around for heads, not for pillars, and I went from texting to suddenly I was wrapped around my uh, handlebars, thrown onto the floor on the concrete, and there was a big old crash. And then as I slowly got up, to my embarrassment, I saw my friend across the bridge. And I'm like, oh, they saw everything. And so I walked my bike over. I'm like, did you see that? And they looked up and they said, no, see what? I, I was texting. What happened? <laughs> Nothing. Don't worry about it, right? You see, you can be so focused on something that it makes you blind to everything around you. I was so focused on texting that I missed that little barrier that prevents vehicles. My friend was so focused on texting that they missed me crashing into the cement, right? Peter is saying that without these qualities that come from faith, without something like self-control that is restraining a sinful lifestyle, then you're nearsighted to the point of blindness. You're not looking at the whole picture he clarifies specifically, you're blind to what has been done for you. You've forgotten that you were cleansed from former sins. Cleansing or purification, that was very important in the Old Testament. If you were unclean, there was some type of flaw or contagion that prevented you from being near to other people. It prevented you from being near to God himself. Our sin, it taints us. It will eternally prevent us from being in God's presence. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're cleansed from that. You're cleansed from all sin that has happened in your life. You're purified and you're brought back into proximity with God. You're close to him because of Jesus' blood. Listen to one of God's promises in the Old Testament. He's writing to Israel in the, the book of Ezekiel. He says, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. In a spiritual sense, we are defiled by sin, but Jesus cleanses us to be his people if these qualities are missing in your life, you've forgotten what God did. 
And that sounds innocent enough, right? Like, I forget my church keys sometime when I'm on the way to church. It's not intentional, it just sometimes it happens. Well, the more monumental the action or the event, the less the innocence when you forget about it, right? If you've forgotten your anniversary or you've forgotten a birthday of your spouse, you might understand that, right? It's less innocent because it was more monumental. God chose to cleanse us from our former sins, and it cost him the thing. It cost his very own son, the one with whom God was well pleased. To forget about that is a big deal. To live your life ignorant of that is the ultimate insult to God. This is not talking about slipping up in sin. It's describing a lifestyle of not caring about God's will. I like the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We were on that list. You can find your sin on that list. That's who we were. We used to be caught in our own sinful desires. You see, we judged by our culture that it was okay. We judged by our conscience that it was okay. We judged by our feelings that it was okay. It was not okay by God's standard. This led to corruption. This led to a decay of who we were meant to be. Your sinful desires, they will lie to you. If you're forgetting that you were cleansed of your former sins, you're turning a cold shoulder to God. You're so focused on sin or pleasure or the world around you that you have this tunnel vision. You're blind. You don't see what that sin is actually doing, and that's such a dangerous place to be. You're called to be a partaker of the divine nature, not cling to the corruption that defined who you were. Essentially, what Peter is doing here is he's sending out a Nexel alert. Do you ever get those on your phone? especially at like two in the morning when you're sleeping, you get this alert that comes through on your phone. He's, Peter's sending out the message, beware of this description. You see, these false teachers that are coming in that are trying to entice people to follow them, Peter says they match this description of someone who is blind. We find in chapter two that the false teachers are making the claim that because of their knowledge, they can do what they want. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion. They despise authority. They have no self-control. They have no moral excellency. They have no brotherly love for each other. Chapter 219 of 2 Peter says they are enslaved to corruption. They're not escaping it. They're enslaved to it. He's not calling these false teachers out by name. He's giving the church a description of what they will look like. Jesus tells us what happens if we follow the spiritually blind. He says, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. You see, these qualities, they also give us assurance of who to follow. The lack of quality shows us who not to follow. 
If you were to get close to me and you see in my life that I am lacking these qualities, that's a big deal. No matter what I am saying, if these qualities aren't infused into my life, don't follow me. Don't follow someone who has no self-control over sinful desires. That doesn't mean we won't stumble. It means that we don't have a lifestyle where we just give in to anything that we want. Don't follow me if I don't have any brotherly affection. If I'm treating other Christians as less than nothing or as pushed apart, that's not how it works. Peter sends out this nexel. He says, these false teachers, they're blind. Don't follow them. And then he builds up and he says in verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Peter has been building up to this point. He made the claim in verse 3 that we can become partakers of the divine nature. He exhorts us for this reason. He says, make every effort to dip into your faith and to provide these qualities because these qualities will do something good for you and if you don't have these qualities, it will be something negative for you. Well, now he's finally ready to land the plane. Therefore, because of these things, be all the more diligent. There's urgency, there's haste, there's effort that's gonna go into this and it's an effort to confirm your calling and election. Week one, we talked about these wire nuts that Peter uses. When you're doing electrical work, you have two wires that come up and you put a wire nut on them and you twist and they tap into the same line. Well, Peter has been using two words and they're meant to be twisted together to tap into the same reality. And we see that right here. He, he uses calling and election. Calling was a word from verse three where he said that we were called to God's own glory and excellence. We were called to see how good God is. And then he pairs it with election. So this calling, it was an invitation to experience something. It was of special privilege and responsibility. And it's twisted with election. It was God's choice. God did not have to. He deliberately selected us for something. What Peter's getting at here is to be diligent to confirm that what you have is authentic, that you have been called to God's glory and excellence, that you have firm ground to stand on. The way that we confirm that we've been called to God's glory and excellence, it's through these qualities. They, they give us assurance. Look at where Peter goes with this. He says, more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. My wife and I had a chance to do a 10-year anniversary trip to Kentucky. We didn't take the kids with us. We missed them. Kids, if you're watching, we missed you. It was a great trip without them, though. We did uh, a lot of different stuff. We did some hiking, though, and I learned something about myself that week. I don't like heights. You see, I, I have done roller coasters, and I was always fine with roller coasters, but we were doing hiking up, and there was some beautiful scenery but on the first day, I read a sign, and it was talking about all the different rescues they had to do because people lost their footing because they got a little too close, and they stumbled over, right? And some of them made it, and some of them didn't make it. And so I have this picture of this sign going through, and as we're going up, we're going through all these open-faced, like, rock bridges, and you can get close to the edge, and there's no guardrail. And that just, oh, that... Inside, I just tense up. And my wife's the opposite. She's sitting on the edge, kicking her feet, you know, saying, this is great. Like, we should take our kids here. And I'm like, no, do you know our kids? 
We're not taking our kids here. Can you imagine them like, oh, I can't do it, right? You give me a guardrail, I don't mind heights. You take the guardrail away, I get squeamish. Roller coasters are great. There's protection there. There's assurance I won't fall to my death. Most likely, right? Peter gives us assurance. He gives us a guardrail. He doesn't say you probably won't fall if you do these qualities. It's definitive. You will not fall. You will never fall. That's food for my soul. You're never going to stumble and lose your footing. Well, it's important to ask, what does Peter mean by fall, stumble? It can't mean sin in this context because we're still escaping sin. That's what Peter said in verse 4. We're in the process of escape, but these sinful desires, they wage war against our soul. No, as we dip down into our faith, as we dip down into God's promises, into our trust of him, then we'll never lose our footing in our relationship with God. We'll never stumble over the edge and be separated from him for eternity. Listen to the way that Paul says this in Philippians. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God began a good work in us, and we're not the ones to finish it. God will bring it to completion. These qualities are a guardrail for us, not because these qualities save us, not because we're finishing the good work, but because they show that a good work has been started in you. They show that we're trusting in God's promises already, that we're plugged into the source, that we have true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. It's a litmus test. You see, these qualities, they give us the assurance that we are partakers of the divine nature. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's assurance. You're not falling off the cliff because Jesus has a grip on you and nothing can loosen Jesus' grip once he has a grip on you. Peter brings it home for us. He writes, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For in this way. This is connecting back to verse 5, which connects back to verse 3. We said last week that we were called to make every effort to supplement our faith, to draw out of our faith and lavishly supply these other qualities. Peter's using that same word. He's saying, for in this way, there will be something lavishly provided for you, lavishly supplied for you. He's going to supply more than just qualities for us. He's going to supply an entrance to our eternal salvation. That's a precious promise that God has already given us, that he will save us, and it's not dependent on our works. It's through our faith. I started with that passage in Matthew. I'm going to circle back around to it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you workers of lawlessness. See, I used to be afraid of this passage. It used to give me anxiety, and now it doesn't. Something's changed for me. You see a contrast in this passage. There's people who say, Lord, Lord, and there's those that do the will of the Father. What's interesting is we look on the outside for religious activity. We look on the outside for the will of the Father. We look for prophesying in his name, for casting demons out in his name, for doing mighty works in his name. And those all look like the will of the Father. But Jesus says it can be a veneer. Evidently, they're not escaping corruption. They're not waging war against their sinful desire because Jesus tells them, I never knew you. You see the doorway. They never went through a personal relationship with Jesus. They never had the knowledge and the personal intimacy of who God was. He doesn't say, you turned away from me. He says, I never knew you. And he calls them workers of lawlessness. And they may give Jesus lip service, but they're actively rebelling against God in their lives. This is not talking about slipping up in sin. It's describing a lifestyle of not caring about God's will. The eternal kingdom is for those that want to do the will of the Lord, that have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus to do the will of the Father. If you're dipping into your faith, if you are trusting God's promises in supplying these qualities, it's because you care about the will of the Father. There's assurance for you. God will never cast you out. It's not by our works that we get into heaven. It's by Jesus' work on the cross. And you can stand firm in that. You can cling to that. But if you don't care about the will of the Father, if you're content with your sinful desires, then you have no assurance. You have a warning. There will be people that come to church just like you today, that come every Sunday and yet they have no knowledge of Jesus. There will be people that Jesus has to say, I never knew you. That doesn't have to be you. You don't have to live in fear of that. Peter doesn't want to scare his audience. He wants to give them assurance that they do have true knowledge, that they are following the right people, that there will be an entrance that is richly provided for them. And the image of our entrance to the eternal kingdom, it's such a warm welcome. It will be richly provided for you. As people arrive, I just, imagine, I just imagine excitement going on. Lots of hugging, lots of kissing, lots of announcing as you arrive into the kingdom. It is lavish. It is extravagant. You can have assurance of that. Because of your works, no. Because of your faith, because you've already seen God using your faith. You've already seen God working through your faith, and he who began a good work will finish it to completion. You're not called to be a worker of lawlessness, but a partaker of the divine nature. Don't stand idle, new hope. Make every effort to do these qualities. Be diligent about confirming your calling and election. Do you know God? Do you know his excellency? Have you tasted that he's good in a way that gets you over sin, that gives you self-control, that gives you moral excellence? Come see his goodness, his excellence, and his glory, and then join him. It's worth it.
If you don't know Jesus, if you're struggling with the faith of Jesus, come talk to me. I would love to proclaim his excellencies. I'd love to help however I can. But if you do know Jesus, let's be partakers of the divine nature. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for these people that you have bought with your own blood, Lord, that you have redeemed, that you have cleansed, that you have prepared to be your own people. I pray that we would step into who you declare us to be. I pray that we would reach deep into our faith this week, that we would trust your promises, that we would know your promises, and that we would want to follow after you all the days of our life. We thank you for assurance, Lord. We thank you that we don't have to wonder if we're your children or not, but that we can have confidence of your love and confidence of your power. And it's in your son's mighty name we pray these things. Amen. It's been a great three weeks with you, New Hope. Thank you for your time, and have a great rest of your weekend.